Let's let's go to the Lord straight in prayer. I just can't even wait to just jump in. Let's um, pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to take this time. And Lord, we can pull out of it different key little moments and uh, points. But Lord, we want to be touched by your word. We want to be changed by your word. We want to be transformed and And God, I pray tonight that you would revolutionize each of us. Lord, that you would take those things that are good and strengthen them. Take those things that are right, Lord, and, and bolster them greater. Take those things that are unruly, Lord, tonight, warn them and remove them. Those things that are weak, strengthen. God, do your therapy on each of us. Do your work on each of us. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, to receive everything you want to teach us tonight. And when we find ourselves transformed, revolutionized, really beautifully intimized with you tonight, let your word burst off the page and just grab us individually where we need to be spoken to, individually where you need to speak a word into our lives, but also corporately as a family. As you build this family, God, now have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. In the book of Judges, there are 12 judges. Some are going to get several chapters. We'll see with Deborah, she gets two following this. We'll see Samson, of course, who gets a great deal of press right before the epilogue, if you will, of this horrible story that this book ends with, which sets the perfect contrast for the following book, the book of Ruth, which I would comfortably call the Gospel of Ruth, if you will. But in this particular chapter, we meet the first three, which means we meet a quarter of the judges in a single chapter. And I find it interesting, they're strewn through like this, In our beginning verses, we'll sort of see the setup for it until about verse 7. 7 will hinge us then into our first of our three, following us from Othniel to Ehud, and from Ehud ultimately to Shamgar. One of the most, uh, it's got to be rough to be a judge when you see someone like Samson, who seems to be such a kind of a guy that needs to be so whacked by the Holy Spirit. And yet, this guy gets a verse at the end of it all. But God knows exactly what he's doing, and I, I pray that, We'll see exactly that. So look at it with me as we begin these verses. The first six verses, read them along with me if you would please. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that He might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars of Canaan or in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamat. And they were left, that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Yebusites. That's, of course, those in Jerusalem. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their sons. I should say, gave their daughters to their sons. That would be even weirder yet. 
and they served their gods. Just checking to see if you're listening. Notice in our first verses, by the way, we read that God did two things. These nations were left so that he might, in the first case, to test, and then in the second case, to teach. The word for test, <coughs> excuse me, is the word nachash. Can you try, I should say in this case, nasak. Would you say nasa? Try that, nasa. Nasa, simple word. Nasa means to test. Now, it all depends on your kind of academic experience, the way you're going to pull this. <coughs> because, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the, <coughs> wow, there we go. Yeah, there we go. <clears throat> the word Nassau, to test, means to prove. And for some of you, you kind of, maybe you had those teachers that had it in for you. You just knew that they wanted to make tests for the purpose of your failing. And they laid awake at night rubbing their hands maniacally and going, <laughs> these are questions that, that Hugo will never be able to answer. That kind of thing. Maybe you had that kind of experience. That's not what's happening here. So you read a word like this and then think, why would God be such a meanie? But then there are other cases where you realize that you had, I, I taught, I taught secondary school for six years. I cheered for my students when I'd give them tests. I mean, I really, I would pray for them and then I would read their tests and I just really wanted them to do well. I, mean, I wanted them to pass. Because what a test is really supposed to do is prove if you learned anything and what you have left to learn. What's interesting is you may not really be teachable until you know what you don't know or that you know that you don't know. And what you find, and, and I learned this much more teaching martial arts, because a lot of times guys kind of come in with their cup half full. They've learned something. They've watched it, you know, a YouTube video or whatever the case. Or, I mean, back in those days, we didn't have YouTube when I taught. In those days, they just watched other people or they, worse yet, watched sort of kung fu movies or something. And they thought they could just sort of imitate. And what you had in the end of it all was a bunch of guys that sort of thought they knew it, but they really didn't. And of course, nothing ever really is supposed to make contact in those kind of movies. They were all for big show. And just like dancing, everything's big movement. So you can kind of see the big movement and it has a whoosh sound at the end of it all, which never really happens in real life, of course, unless you've got someone behind you making it. You know, but in the end of it all, you kind of got the idea. They have this idea and they're unteachable in that state. But it takes that place where you really fail the test, if you will. Where you, you're put in the test and you realize you didn't pass it the way you wanted to. For you to be in a teachable position. Now for some people, maybe you're humble enough that you're willing to actually just take the course by choice. But for most of us, and clearly here what we see is that God brings that. But he brings the testing for a teaching. So that we would go, okay, I don't know this. And then we're, we're willing to sit at the feet of God and let him teach us. Now, in America, and I know that's different here, but in America, there's letter grades that are attached to your, to your tests. If you got 100%, if you did really well, you got an A. And the letters then proceeded. For whatever reason, they skipped E, maybe because it looked too much like excellent. But they went A, B, C, D, and then F. F, of course, was failing. And what we're going to see in this is that God tests the nation Israel and they start off with a C, which in God's opinion is in passing, and they go down from there. And that will be the necessity of our first seven verses setting us up. And then what God will do is he'll introduce 
three people, each judges, each delivers, each with their own beautiful offering of maybe where you're at if you've lost or failed the test. The good news is, or bad news, it all depends on where you're at with it, is that God always allows retakes and actually forces often retakes. So if you're going to pass it sooner or later, you might as well pass it the first time. But if you haven't, and you're in a place of failing grades in regards to obedience with the living God, might I suggest to you that the three people he brings in each will represent in one manner. No, literally, we're looking at history here. But they're each going to bring in something that will help you pass the test. And maybe why you didn't. So in the beginning of this, we find that what it's going to take that's going to bring you to that place is a test or a trial or, if you will, a battle. God wants to prove me right. That's the purpose of the test. Or he wants to prove me so that improving means that we see what we really are. But what's clear in Scripture is that we could really believe we're something we're not. Jeremiah 17.9 makes really clear that the heart, the heart, your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things. Now, I don't like that verse. It's true. I don't deny it. But the reason is, is that there are other things that I think of that are deceitful. When you think of things that lie, that don't tell the truth, that are untruthful, think of what image comes to your head. Politics, used car salesman. I don't know what it is for you. The person who calls you on the phone and says, congratulations, you've just won something. Or while we're here to help you with your claim for your PPO, though you've never had a claim with your PPO. The person who approaches you on the street. Maybe it's the person that's out there with their hand down and says, I haven't eaten in five days, but they're looking pretty well fed. But you know it and they're looking for that pound and you just know there's some lack of truth. And what I mean, think of what image, what icon comes to your head when you think, deceitful now let's go up a level what's the epitome of deceitful my first thought is satan but satan's a noun he's a thing and what jeremiah says in jeremiah 17 is that our heart is the most deceitful thing which means my heart is more deceitful than satan is and i really don't like that and perhaps the reason is is that i'm much quicker to listen to my heart thanks to disney than i am to satan and often because sometimes i can actually smell out when he's the one talking But sometimes my heart knows to speak a language that's infinitely more sublime. Subtle. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 26, I see Peter standing up and telling Jesus, along with every other disciple, that they were willing to die for him. And I genuinely believe, though I must make clear it's my opinion, that he really believed it. He really believed that he was willing to die until push came to shove and he denied that even knew him on three occasions. I mean, that tells me something because most of us, and we use from that the term to peter out. Like you really meant it and you came with it all, but somehow you took the old mick out of yourself. And then you just kind of faded away. That's where it comes from. But understand, it is these things, these trials, that are, by the way, tribulations, that are testing, that are necessary And by the way, they're beneficial. Remember in Luke chapter 8, when the disciples are in a storm, which by the time the storm has engaged itself to perhaps, if you will, as much as God's going to turn the dial up, they are all convinced they are perishing. Now think about what that means. 
That means that everyone there, including the four fishermen who worked on that same place, more than likely one of them is this one of their boats, were convinced that they were going to die. Now, when you're in a plane, a small plane, and you hit, you hit turbulence, I've been into several of those, where do you look for comfort? The ground? You look at the pilot. Because it's the pilot that should be the expert. Oh, we had landed once in Dodomo. Actually, we actually landed in Dar es Salaam. And we were flying to Dodomo in Tanzania. We had brought these duffel bags to help the people who had gone there. We were going to go and help some Christians. We were going to help build some churches. We were going to go out and minister. And we were going to go deep in the bush. And it was going to be an amazing time. And I had brought with me an A&E surgeon, a great guy to have with you, and my rough-and-tumble assistant, one of my rough-and-tumble assistant pastors, who was basically Mr. Cowboy. You know, if you know anything about cowboys, cowboys don't cry, cowboys aren't rattled by anything. They just pick up whatever they have to and throw it and then shoot it and go on with life. I mean, they're just, they're sort of a straight, you know, nobody. I mean, so these are the two guys I have with me. And the cowboy, by the way, when he works out, his arms get larger than most girls' waists. And I'm not kidding you. I've watched him flex and actually put a girl's pair of trousers on his arm and hold the, the thing up. I mean, but he's just a gentleman about it, so he doesn't do that often. So these are a couple good guys to have with me. You'd think guys that know how to handle emergency circumstances. And we had brought with us duffel bags that at all roughly were about half our weight. Uh, now, for, for what it's worth, I, I am roughly about 15 stone. And by the way, the two guys that were with me were roughly also 15 stone. So we were somewhere around 7, 8 stone were our bags. That's a lot of stones. So we, the guy arrives, and he's just, and I don't know about you, but the, it's sort of like you almost can't be a, a pilot unless you have a certain look about you. You, know, you, have to, you have to have that silver, it can't be gray, it's silver hair. You know, and there's this sort of regal, hello. You know, there's this regality about him. You know, it's, it's like kind of the kind of guy that you just know is going to look good in a three-piece suit. And the guy comes out, and he's everything a pilot you would expect him to be. And he kind of looks, and he starts to laugh, and he looks and there I am with my two guys. And there I am with the guy that's meeting us, William Zindi. And he looks and he goes, so which of you are going in the plane? And William, in classic, beautiful African form, says, all brother. And he starts to laugh again. And he says, this is a three-person Cessna. There are four of you. It's good for three people. And three of you are rather large people. So what are we going to do? He's like, well, and then, he, then we step away and he sees the bags and he starts to laugh again. And he says, two of these bags make up one of you. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of you, in essence, in a three to four person Cessna. And he goes, well, I guess we should give it a try. We're all Christians. We know where we're going. Well, that's a pep talk, isn't it? All right. So we load everything in. We have a runway that is literally two and a half times the average size runway, which is a good thing. And we bounce like a sparrow or like a rock thrown by a decent arm on, the, on a pond. <clears throat> boing, boing, boing. And finally, after a time where you really think at this point we've just basically driven the plane to the Domo, we finally get up. And at this point we kind of look, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of catty corner to the pilot so I can kind of see him pretty well. And I'm kind of looking and things are good. We're good. And I'm shoved between, I don't, for whatever reason, I'm shoved between my two guys. The guy that's in the front seat, he's the little African fella. 
decent guy, but he, you know, it's sort of like the emergency exit, the person there is dangling their knees. Well, some of us larger people, never mind. Anyways, so, <clears throat> so I'm there, and I'm kind of shoved between my two guys, and we're kind of all right. And, and we go, and we hit basically about seven or 8,000 feet. And as we hit about seven or 8,000 feet, we had experienced something I had never experienced in a small vessel like that before. Apparently, there are these sort of heat vents. Some of you are familiar with them. And a heat vent, what it does is it thins the air, the air that's holding your plane up, which is a miracle in and of itself. Because especially in our case, because we're about as chubby as anything should be. We make bees look like they should fly. And, you know, and so we're kind of up there and, you know, we kind of make penguins look like they're, they're ready. for. Fly. And so we're up there. And, and what happens is the plane drops. But it doesn't just drop. There's an alarm that goes off that sounds exactly like a car accident. So there we are kind of. Right? All of a sudden it's like, bam, and we drop. And we drop about, I don't know, whatever it was, 30 meters or whatever it was. It was a substantial drop. And at that point now, your liver is in your eyeballs. You know, it's like your colon somewhere on the top of your head. And you're just kind of looking and just going, wow. And, of course, what do we do? We look at the pilot. And we look at the pilot because we want to make sure that the guy knows what he's doing. So, and we look. And he was like, okay, so, and he tells us that was a heat vent that's that's fairly, not entirely out of the ordinary on a plane this size that's overweight and so forth. All right, okay. So let's climb a little bit. We climb a little bit, and all of a sudden we get about another 10 minutes, and it's like, ah! bam, and we drop about twice as what we did the first time. And now I'm kind of looking over, and his knuckles are a little white. He's like, oh, yeah, that was a pretty big one. That was one of the larger ones I've ever had. And then we're all thinking, yeah, us too, right? Us too. And he goes, well, we're going to have to climb higher now. Now, you know what that means. No matter how high you climb, you're going to have to go back down. So we hit about 10, 11,000 feet, which many of you are aware of. That thins the air out substantially. So now we're all kind of like, Ooh. and at that point, we meet the mother of all heat vents. I mean, this thing, it was, at this point, it was just sort of like, I mean, it may have started with a couple, you know, sort of like a couple smart cars got in a little fender bender. This is now like six big rigs that just sort of fell off a bridge. And it was like, and bam, we're falling. It was like it's, we fell so long that I had time to say to myself, what are we doing? And I look over, and as we fall, we finally get to that point, and he is sweating now. This pilot is sweating. And I look over, my A, I've got my two guys, my, my rough and tough cowboy is trying to find coverage to text his wife goodbye. And I thought, well, that's not very encouraging. And I look over at my A&E guy, and he's standing there with the bag. That's it. You know where that's going. And I'm like thinking, oh, God, please don't let him throw up while this is happening, and we're all kind of figuring out life, and we have to smell this in the plane. But obviously we landed, we were okay. The whole point of it is you're kind of watching the, the, the expert. Now we're back on a boat, and that's kind of what we're experiencing here as we read about these guys with Peter and James, John, Andrew, and the disciples, and Jesus sleeping. And what happens, the beauty of it all, is that this was a storm in obedience. Please hear me in that. It was a storm in obedience. Because they, Jesus said, get down into the boat, I'll meet you. And, and, and they got into the boat because he told them to do it, and they did it. But while they hit that storm, they turn to Jesus and don't you care, we're perishing. Jesus stands up, he rebukes the storm. Many of us are familiar with it. And then they turn and they say, who can this be that even the wind and waves obey him? The point of it was, is that one of the things that God does in these beautiful tribulation moments is he reveals himself in a way we would never have seen him before. A way that we need to see him. We know intellectually and idealistically that's maybe who he is. 
But man, now it's like, now it's more than just something to argue about or something to answer on a trivia game. Because at a moment like that, he has to be that or we die. And that's what we see in this. And the Lord, what we read here, is he's going to put them in these, these moments where they have the opportunity to succeed or fail. And the only difference is whether they keep their eyes on him. So whether it's going to be, by the way, Matthew 7, where he tells us that the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds beat on both houses. We're, we're real familiar with that, with doing his word and not just hearing it. Which clearly, the rain falls on both houses, the wind blows on both houses, the floods rise on both houses. That's whether you're obedient or not. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that you may have peace. And then he goes on to say, right after that, in the world you will have tribulation. And all of a sudden, I'm not too sure how I feel peaceful with that. In the world you will. Not might. Maybe it's a possible. No, you will have tribulation. But cheer up. I've overcome the world. What we find is that these tribulations are necessary. And they are not an option. In Acts 14, by the way, when Paul speaks, after getting beat up half with it, more than likely beat to death, Paul will tell the disciples as he strengthens their souls by saying, we must, not might, but we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Paul, by the way, even with all the the beatings and abuse that he received, will call them light afflictions in comparison and can't even be worthy to compare to the excellence of the glory of Christ when he's revealed. And how we can make an amputation out of a paper cut. And I can imagine Paul looking and smacking us in the head. Going, what are you guys doing? What do you mean? That same Paul will say in Romans 5.3 that we glory in our tribulations because we know that those tribulations produce perseverance. So God allows these trials And he does them to prove us in such a way so that we could be humble enough to receive the instruction he wants to give us, but also so that we would know war. Because he wants us to know not only that there is warfare, but he also wants us to know what it is we're fighting. So he says then, in verse 3, and he names them, the five lords of the Philistines. And by the way, if you want to know more about them, you can go to 1 Samuel 6. One of my favorite stories, because it's one of those stories that when you tell people who've never read the Bible, they almost don't believe it's in there. Because the Philistines take the ark and God smites them with hemorrhoids. I mean, you just don't find that in every book. And how God, you know, the statement he must make, you're a real pain. You know, anyways, you get, but, but in it, it goes to five different places. And the five different places that it goes are all Philistine places where there are lords. And it says the five lords of the Philistines for what it's worth. Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And by the way, those same places you're going to, feed, you're going to hear today, and of course even today, there's still trouble spots, places like Gaza, for instance. One of them is Mount Baal-Hermon, which by the way is Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus sits and asks, who do men say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? So the five lords of the Philistines, as we read this, all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, Baal-Hermon, and again, that's Caesarea Philippi, or Banias, to the entrance of Hamat. And they were left that he might test Israel by them. And this is what he's testing. The question is, how do I pass the test? Well, it's really one thing, and notice what it is. It's to obey. It is abandon to obedience. 
So there's our test. But take a look how Israel responds in verse 5. Thus, thus, in other words, in light of this test, this is the results. The children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They took their daughters to be their wives, uh, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7 says, So Israel, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So this is what happened. Israel starts with a C. The C is for compromise. They compromised because all God said was obey me. What's amazing is we can go to church and we can be taught how to be Christian-like but not obey. We could talk about how to sing the songs and how to practice some kind of spiritual gift and how to really look like we've got this thing going. But in the end of it all, if we're not seeking to obey the Lord, we're really in trouble because Jesus never said, well, you called me Savior, we're good. He said, why do you even call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? The issue will always be His Lordship, and Lordship takes obedience. And that's, by the way, never going to be a popular message. It wasn't when it was written, and it isn't today. Imagine, the crazy part is people wear them on hats that says, obey, and they wear them on shirts that says, obey, but they're they're saying is obey me, not I'm going to obey someone else. And he goes, look, I just want to put you in a place because what I want you to do is obey. I want you just to trust me. I want you to abandon yourself and resolve that I'm really going to take care of this. But the bigger the trial, the more we are going to be tested in these areas and the more we're going to be tempted to try to take matters into our own hands. Sometimes that's because of time, like in Abraham and Sarah's case. I mean, 25 years is a long time to wait for anything. We have a hard time waiting a minute because it's a microwave dinner. We order something from Amazon and we read, wow, do I really want to pay that extra 13 pounds so I can get it two days earlier? Why in the world would I want to do that? What's funny is often what we're ordering is something like three pounds. And I recognize that's going to be a temptation. Sometimes it's really going to be just that we, it's almost always going to be in the area of God's provision. And what's amazing is, is if you actually study the scriptures, what we see is God fed the 5,000 before he fed the 4,000. And yet they freaked out at the 4,000, even though he fed more than that before that. Have you ever had that where God's done some kind of great miracle and you're in a smaller trial than that one, but you still think you're going to fall in it? You still think, God, how are you going to do this one? It's like, I've done it this far. Why would I not do it now? Hey, look, at God has never made a mistake and you will not be his first one. So, so get this. This starts with compromise, but what happens once I start to compromise? And again, the compromise is just simply, to be honest, trusting in myself. I trust in the Lord. God, you're going to have to do this. I'm going to follow what you say. It doesn't have to make sense, but I've already told it because I've quoted it for half my life now. Trust in the Lord with all your, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the easy part. Although it's not, because the other two things, by the way, are supposed to be part of that. And then it says what? To lean not upon your own understanding. Okay, do any of you really get what that means? What that means is when I don't understand it, it doesn't matter whether I understand it or not, it's not my crutch. My crutch is the trust, not my understanding. And they're a comparison. I'm either going to trust in the Lord with all my heart, or I'm going to lean on my own understanding. But see, so people go, so wait a minute, so how could God be in control, and how could man have a choice? I don't understand. I'm like, I don't have to understand. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. 
But look at these circumstances seem to be contrary to what God promised. And I go, yeah, but I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I don't have to understand. And I'm looking at someone and I'm like, yeah, their problem is big. And they're like, you don't understand what I've gone through. And you're like, you're right. I don't understand what you've gone through. But I trust in the Lord that he's bigger than that thing. And I really do believe that even if I don't understand, he still knows how to take care of it. And they started with compromise, but the C went to a D. Notice what it says. It says in verse 5 that the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. So you know, this is what happens next. Is that somewhere down the line, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I get challenged to sit down and shut up. I'm sitting among people that I'm supposed to impact but in, and influence, but instead now I'm just kind of imitating them and trying to blend in. Because I don't want people to look and point. And here, let's face it, the biggest danger you're mostly going to get is the look. Oh, God forbid the look, right? You're going to say something, you're going to go. You know, it's like, and that isn't if looks can kill. Because that doesn't even kill, it's just if looks could irritate. And you don't want that. And he looks and you see what happens is somewhere down the line, we moved into the city. And then we just stopped realizing there was a purpose in it. So what happens? We start to dwell among them. And there's our D. But as we dwell among them, notice what happens next. The same people, by the way, that God challenged us in this, are the same people now that we're actually seeking to be like, that God says, this is actually, you're supposed to drive them out. In Deuteronomy, and I challenge you to check this, in Deuteronomy 7, before Moses dies, Right before he dies, is, is the Deuteronomy is basically one message, is, is that ultimately he tells them, look at you're not to make marriages with this people. You're not to, to go and just, you're, you're not supposed to just infiltrate and imitate. You're supposed to go over there and impact and transform. And you can't do that by just sort of sneaking in, shaking everyone's hand, and then sitting down and shutting up. And he looks and goes, that is not the way this works. But notice what happens here is first we took their girls, then we gave up our own. Did you see that here? It's the same thing that happened in Numbers, by the way. When Balach hires Balachim. And I look at this and I think, yeah, well, first let me just try to skim off of what they have to offer. And then what happens is I start giving up my own. And then what happens is at the end of it all, just the same thing that was promised in Deuteronomy 7, which is that if you do that, it says you are not to give your, you're not to take their daughters to be your wives, and you are not to give your daughters to be theirs. Because if that is the case, they will turn your hearts away from me to serve their gods. And God says, listen, that's not what I want. What I want is for you rather to give me your heart. I want you to love me. And if you love me, you won't be looking for that kind of love because you will have found real love in me. And there's the sad part, beloved. The sad part is, is that if we really don't find our love in God, we are going to hunt for it everywhere and we're never going to find it. And that's exactly what we see here. And here's the problem. Sometimes the enemy does come like a lion and his servants like ravenous wolves. And at those moments we know to put up our guard, but sometimes he comes like an angel of light and his servants like ministers of righteousness, wolves in sheep's clothing. Sometimes he comes to entice and not just to a challenge and if we are not really keeping our eyes on the one we love and if we're not willing to offer our love where it should be will we let astray to our own destruction and that is not what God intends 
And here's the sad part. Is that God is not that way. Well, actually, that's the good news, I suppose. But the sad part is how much He wants that love and He's never changing His mind on it and how fickle we are to give it. God didn't say, hey, don't just don't go marrying those girls and don't be given your own because what I don't want is for you guys to look different. I don't want you to be part Jewish and something else. God, this is never about God talking about mixed race. What God's talking about is a, is a mixed heart. And God says, this is a God who says, I, what I want is your love. That's what I want is your love. And, I, and if I can't get it, where are we going to be with this? You're going to be spending your whole life hunting down everything else and discovering it's not enough, but never changing your mind even though you know where it really is meant. You'll be trying to drink from broken cisterns while the living water still rushes in the back of your memory. Is that what you really want? So, notice by verse 7, it goes to an F. C, they compromised. D, they dwelt among. But F, they forgot and forsook God. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and served Baals. That's forsaking now. Serving the Baals and Ashtoreths. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishithaim, or Shathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. The children of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim eight years. How long, is it, how long does it have to be before you cry out to him? How miserable do you have to get? Does anyone know where Mesopotamia is? See, I mean, we kind of nod because we, we've heard the term. Meso means middle. <clears throat> or if you will, between. Potamia, Potamos, means river. Matter of fact, the word for horse is hippos. So a water horse is a hippos potamos. Or we might say hippopotamus. It literally means water horse although they don't look much like the horses I'm familiar with. Potamas meaning river. Mesopotamia means between the rivers. So what rivers are those? That's the Tigris and the Euphrates, which puts them smack dab in Iraq. So this guy, whose name, by the way, is doubly wicked. That's what his name means. Kushan, from Kush, if you will, is what that's supposed to mean. Doubly wicked comes from Iraq. Now, we used to have to take quite a trip to do this. I mean, what's interesting is notice that the first guy that God brings here isn't even from their territory. It isn't like any of these people, these pockets of people that were still left in Israel. This guy is, a, is a, an export that God brings in. And all that to show there's more than these little pockets of compromise you're leaving. There's a whole world out there that God's keeping you from for good reason. And the moment you turn your back on him and forsake him, man, this stuff's going to come at you hard and heavy. And they served him for eight years. This guy put them in bondage. Verse 9 says, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, Othniel, El is in God. Othniel, we've said, talks about the lion of, or more specifically, the power of, or the might of God. That's what his name means. God's might. And we're going to be literal. He is the son of a guy whose name means on the hunt, or the hunt. 
We know a bit of him because we met him at the beginning of this, if you remember. He was the guy that showed that uh, that this girl that he married, who happens to be Caleb's younger, uh, Caleb's daughter, was worth fighting for. The whole theme of this is whether this is worth fighting for. And with that, then, we see our first one. By the way, notice what it says about him. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 10, came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rashathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rashathaim. Boy, this, name's, this guy's name mentioned so many times. Aren't you glad I'm reading it, not you? God's keeping reminding us, doubly wicked, doubly wicked, doubly wicked. This guy, doubly wicked, came from Iraq. And he enslaved these people. And they served doubly wicked for eight years. Then they cried out because of doubly wicked. And God raised up a guy named God's power. And he came over. And notice, by the way, we don't read of an army. Do you read here of any army taking on another army? It just seems like two guys were in a battle. And this Kushan Rashathaim, just to say it one more time, was the one who was taken down. Doubly wicked was taken down by the power of God. Interesting. This is our first one. But what I read in verse 10 is enlightening. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Do you know, by the way, this is the first time in Scripture we read that literal phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon. Now, we do know that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Moses. We do know that the Spirit of the Lord was upon uh, Bezalel and Ahaliab, the guys who helped sort of form in the project of building the tabernacle. We do know that. But what we're going to find is there are at least four guys that are clearly mentioned as the Spirit of the Lord coming upon in one way or another. My favorite is Samson because the words are different than this. This is the idea of coming upon. Uh, is where with Samson it tells us literally the Spirit of the Lord beat Samson. I mean, you don't want to be in that case. So let me make this really clear for just a moment to clarify on this. And then we'll start talking about what we'll build on because I don't want to just develop things so much that we lose the key point. But listen. Jesus said in John 16, two basic ways that the Holy Spirit interfaces with people. And of course, the moment you start saying Holy Spirit, people want to go all kinds of places with it. Some say, oh, you know, back off. And some people are like, oh, great, this is a license to do whatever I want. But scripturally, he tells us this, that he dwells with you, but will be in you. So might I suggest three things according to scripture. The with, he dwells with every unbeliever. And the idea isn't well in, he dwells with. And the idea of it is, according to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, he is there to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what he tells us. So the Holy Spirit is dwelling with, among, or around an unbeliever, pushing them to the cross. That's what he's doing. But the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, according to Ephesians 1.13, the moment we say yes, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. A guarantee of our inheritance, cleansing us from the inside out, transforming us, which I'm very thankful for. How about you? Because it is he who lives within us that wills to do and, to, and does for God's good pleasure. So he dwelled with an unbeliever, but dwells in a believer. But there's also a third thing, because Jesus says it in Acts 1.8, when he says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, that would be the one we would know from the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit coming upon is, is empowering for a ministry, for a calling. He is now, in other words, God does not call you to a spiritual, eternal ministry and demand that you use your physical strength to accomplish it. What, God, what actually God puts you in, he calls you into the miraculous and it gives you the power to live that way. God calls you into a life that will completely crumble and fail if he doesn't do it. Everything God invents is invented that way. Marriage. 
is invented to only succeed with God is the power to unite, to keep together and hold together. Every calling God has placed on your life, He has to do it through you. Because otherwise you start thinking you're the artist instead of actually just being the paintbrush. And there's a joy in being the paintbrush because then the pressure's off. All I have to be is faithful, available, and teachable. That, if you will. And at that, I'm willing to let God use me. I love that. So with Othniel, we see the Holy Spirit come upon him, which means I could see that God's giving him the power to do this ministry. And with that then, the guy takes on doubly wicked and the power of God wins. As Paul would say, by the way, to the Romans, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So here's our first guy. The power of God is his name. And how does he win? He wins, by the way, as we see here in this. He wins a great victory because the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He needs God's power to do it. Now, as a result of that, the land had rest, verse 11, for 40 years. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, I'll pick this up because we only have 10 minutes left here. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon. Eglon, by the way, means round or cow-like, which is perfect for this guy because it says that he was, well, we'll see here in a moment. Eglon, key of Moab. Now, by the way, we are on the east side of the river. You're familiar. This is that land that was given to the two and a half tribes that didn't cross over. Notice, by the way, where the battle hits now. By the way, I would imagine they would be the ones in both of these cases because Iraq is also east. So it says, God strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. Many believe that to be Jericho. You can argue over it if you want. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Remember the first time? How many years did they serve Kushan or Shathayim? Do you remember? Eight years. Now it's 18. And here's a dangerous thing, beloved is that we can build a tolerance to our misery that God allows us in when we're in disobedience. At the beginning, we're just like, I can't believe I did that. That's so horrible. We were concerned about the effects. And now all of a sudden, we're just like, whatever. And we learn how to dull ourselves and numb ourselves to what God really wants us to do. And that same thing that would have pricked our heart before now is sort of knocking on some stone, and we don't even hear it anymore. 18 years is a long time. Now, the Lord raised up, so it says, verse 15, But the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for him, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, what's the big deal? Do you realize, by the way, only twice in Scripture do we actually have that somebody's listed as left-handed? We have here this guy that's left-handed. And then we have in Judges chapter 20, both are in Judges. And in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, there were 700 left-handed men who could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. What's interesting is they're all from the tribe of Benjamin. That's 701 guys that are all left-handed, the only ones mentioned in Scripture, all from the tribe of Benjamin. What's ironic about that is Benjamin means son of my right hand. Who knew? So we've got 701 guys from the tribe of son of my right hand that are left-handed. And here's this guy. And God makes special note, this is a left-handed guy. We'll see why in a moment. The children of the Lord cried out. 
this guy came and he would bring tribute. Verse 16. Now Ehud had made himself a dagger and notice what he tells us. It was double edged. Now you're probably aware of what that means, right? That means it was shot upon both sides. It brought tribute, it says, by the way. And it was a cubit in length. That, was, that means it was basically from your elbow to the tip of your finger. All right. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now, since almost everyone else is right-handed, I know that I'm left-handed, so I know how grabbing scissors and other things, how, how great that works. But I recognize when they're you know, basically getting frisked at the door, they only check the left side because you, gra- you grab a sword across your, your body. So this guy's able to bring in a sword the size of your arm. And no one's checked him because he's on the, it's on his other side. And then we read this. One of my favorite things here. Just so you know, God pulls no punches. Verse 17. So he brought tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. By the way, he's the only guy in Scripture that has this title. Can you imagine? Hey, you made it into the Bible as Jabba the Hutt. I mean, this... I mean, there are, I mean, like Eli, he was heavy. We read he was old and heavy. But this guy we read, he was very fat. And we're going to see very fat means very fat. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, this is, again, this guy, Ichud. Ichud, by the way, now, when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone. By the way, Ichud means to be united. I think that's interesting. He turned back from the stone images where at Gilgal. Wait a minute. The stone images at Gilgal? Those are either the ones that, if you remember, that was the camp of Israel originally, where we put the stone, the stones upon each other that when God had split the Jordan. So either it was those, or more likely, because the way that the words are listed, that they had taken that instead now, they've put up some form of idols at the place that was supposed to be our place of consecration. But he turned back from the stone images, and I get the idea, he got that far, and he's like, well, man. And then we're going on, he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out. So he's I've got a private message, and the king says, everybody else out. Now, what if he looks out a window, and he sees those stone images? And he sees those stones that he was like, God parted the river. God set up those stones. What if those were the stones? So the king knows. Usually, by the way, in such a situation as this, there would be some form of bribe. That's what the king's looking for. So he came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Now when you're a big heavy guy in the Mediterranean, chances are you want the coolest room you can find on those hot days. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached in with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade. Do you know what the hilt is? That's the handle. And the fat closed over the blade. He did not draw the dagger out of his belly. Yeah, how about you? And his, and then we read, do you see the word entrails? The word is parshadon. And parshadon comes from a word that literally means to be separated, to pull out. Matter of fact, the old King James calls it dirt. More than likely, we're talking about poop here is what we're talking about. Half digested because he kind of... Now, okay, do this for a second. Just hold up your hand. Don't worry, I'm not making you swear. That's unbiblical anyways. But hold up your hand like this for just a second. Now, a cubit is from here to here. Now, that's the blade. Right? He has a dagger. And if you're measuring it, you're measuring the blade. So, I'd like you to think, let's add to that another hand like that. Right? 
Then take that and put it at your belly and go like this. Yeah. You see, now you're going to be eating salads for a long time. Sorry, bro. You stuck, now you stuck a sword in and all of it disappeared. And the fat closed up, which means it has to be more than that because you have to lose your sword. And I'm like, I'm not going in there to dig that out. Right? So this guy goes and he goes in and he goes and he sticks this thing. He's a lefty. I can live that one out. I'm a lefty. And he kind of, you know, I've got a message from God. And oh, we're going to just leave that right there. And we read, and the poop or the dirt came out. And I love this because what we have is this double-edged sword. Does that sound like anything in Scripture? Because we read about the sword of the Spirit as a double-edged sword, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, is a discerner in the tent of the thoughts of, of man's heart. And listen to me on that for a moment, because this is beautiful. Because the idea of this is, is that something like what the Spirit uses as a sword, and that, what is that in Scripture? That's the Word of God. And when the Word of God went in, the poop came out. Now, yeah, well, but wait a minute, don't follow me on this. Right now, the Word of God has to get in. It can't just be bouncing off your face. But if it's coming in right now, the poop's coming out. And let's face it, for some of us, we spend half of our life shoveling poop into our heads through our headphones, through what we see, through our conversations. It's like we're full of dirt. And people go, oh man, you've been brainwashed. And I say, I hope so, because I had a horribly dirty mind. But when I open up the Word, it has to come in. And when that sword goes in, the poop comes out, because it has to. And that's my second thing. And then our last thing, and we'll bring this to close. Then we get our great hero that gives a verse. Oh, by the way, we do have to finish this story. It says, by the way here, it says, verse 23, Then he went out through the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. And when they had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, but to their surprise, the door was locked. The upper room was locked. I find it interesting it's the upper room, for what it's worth. So they said, well, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. Probably aware of what that means. Literally, and this is ironic for some of you, it isn't that he had to, to remove his socks or shoes. Literally, he had to cover his feet. So in those days, when you had to really go tend to your needs, you covered your feet because that's where your clothes went. So they're like, well, he's probably... And when a guy's that big... Anyways, you just don't... Anyways, I'll try not to develop. So it says, they waited until they were embarrassed. They're like, nobody goes for that long. Still, they hadn't opened the doors of the upper room, so they went. They, so therefore, they took the key, opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when they had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Longest time, by the way, in all of the book of Judges that the land will have rest. And finally, we read this in our last verse. Shamgar, the son of Anath, 
who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, yeah, he also delivered Israel. Now, did God even have to throw that in? We don't even know. The guy's name is such, so confusing. Nobody even knows what Shamgar means. So if anyone tells you they really know, just smile and nod. But, but, but understand, it's not a Hebrew name. His, his father's name is Hebrew, but his name isn't, his name's not Hebrew. So they don't even know much about the guy. But all they know is this. This guy, we don't know, do we even know who the enemy was he had to defeat? Enemies of Israel were aware of that. But he had an ox goad. Does anyone know what an ox goad looked like in those days? It was roughly two meters long. So it was like bow staff, bow skills. On one side of it was a sharp stick. So you could poke an animal... Because the whole idea of it is to help people when you're plowing. So he had to you know, poke an animal to get it going, like an ox. But the other side kind of had like a shovel, so that when the plow got kind of muddy, you kind of take the shovel and dig it off, so the plow would be a little bit more, you know. So basically, he's kind of got like a Jackie Chan instrument, right? He's got this kind of thing. And by the way, what we'll read later is that the Philistines had gone so deep with their metallurgy that they had to go, anything that they needed to was metal, they had to go to the Philistines for so imagine, he's got this thing, and whether it has it or not, but he's got kind of this point on one end, but he's got this shovel on the other, and he's got to be like, wah, 600 guys with this thing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm like 590th guy, I'm going home. I mean, if he just kills like 589 guys in front of me, pretty much I'm, I'm kind of thinking this over. Now, I don't know, if we don't read a lot about it, but wait a minute, he's, he, but it says a goad, a goad. And I said, thinking, well, hmm, I can't help but think the Holy Spirit again speaking about a goad because Paul says it in his testimony, and it's in Acts 9. If you remember, when Jesus meets Paul, or Saul at the time, on his way to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Kind of hard to kick against the goads. And the whole time that Saul was trying to destroy Christianity, the Holy Spirit was poking him in the butt like a dumb animal, getting him to go really where he wanted. And sometimes you talk to someone and they freak out and they're, I don't want to hear about your dumb dog or any of that stuff. And they kind of get weird about it. And the reason they're so freaked out about it is because it isn't because you're pushing them, because God's poking them, he's goading them. While you're talking, and that's what bothers them so much. Nobody ever comes up and says, I want to talk to you about Buddha. And they go, oh, I feel that goading because it isn't there. Holy Spirit's not going to goad you to any of these other guys because they're dead and they're still dead. And they're not God. So hear me for a moment as I bring this to close. We went from compromise to dwelling to forsaking God. We failed the test. So how do we get it back? This is what we read. With the first guy, and I remind you, it means the power of God has to come upon us. We need the power of God to overcome even the own wickedness in ourselves. But then what we get from that was a guy that was left-handed. What's so important about that? Okay, I get the sword of the Spirit. I get the Word of God. But when I think about a king, what's at his left hand and what is his right hand is so important because the right hand is the guy that gets the job done. Remember that? Like when Jesus finished at the cross and was resurrected, he sat down at the right hand of God because the guy at your right executes your will. That's why we call him our right-hand man. But the guy at our left, he's the one who records our history and he's our counsel. Who has been in his left hand? It's our counsel. And I get it because what's happening is with the second guy, what you have is we have to take the word of God and let it be our counsel. We can't just take it. See, if we take it in our right hand, what that means is I'm going to use God's Bible on you. You need this. And hey, I'm telling you, trust not in your own understanding. And hey, you know this verse. But in the end of it all, it's like the reason it's two-edged is it has to cut both ways. It's not just cutting you. It has to cut me. And if it's at my left hand, it has to minister to me first. 
Hey, you know what it's like? You can tell the difference between a person who knows a knife is sharp and a person who's been cut by it. You'll say, you know, well, because we make lots of meals at our house and we eat a lot. And Bruno will say, hey, you know, that knife's sharp. Sarah will go, oh, whoa, that knife's sharp. There's a difference because there's a conviction in your voice when you're still holding the, clean, you know, the paper towel around your thumb because it's still, oh, there's a pulse there. You know, because you, you know, and the reason I say this, I want to be able to tell you from the Word of God, this is great because it's cut me first. I don't want to just be like, well, this is great information. No. Needless to say, I'm a little less mild than that. Daniel may just still do that, but he could still do it with the passion in his eyes, right? He'd be like, God's great, but you see you. And he's like, and the reason I say that is, is that if we were willing to let God cut us first, we're really willing to let God's word be our counsel. Not just some Christian person or some Christian psychiatrist or some person we read on the internet that's probably psychotic and doesn't, you know, I mean, we get that. But his word, just his word, God cut me with this. But first, I want you to know before I even read this, I need your power to do this. And now I'm going to get your plan so that you can give me your power to do it. But then there's one more thing. I, need not, I don't just need God's power and God's plan. I need God's prompting. And there's the goading. And I'm like, God, I know. You know how damning it is when you know what you're supposed to do. And you even know God's power is available for you to do it. But you just don't want to do it. Like, yeah, I, and that's the worst, because it's like the most condemning thing as a Christian, you know? It's like, I know I should be doing this. Why am I doing it? Let's get on our faces and say, oh, God, go with me then. Prompt me to it. Draw me to that place. Bring me to that well. Bring me to that person. And then make it so that it would be harder work to disobey you than obey you. Strangely enough, he has a habit of actually saying, well, then let's do that. But when you pray that with me, I want to warn you, and God responds, then let's laugh about how he did it. Because he wants to do that. And what we find at the end of it all is we pass the test by obeying. Because it's his power that we need to obey. It's his word so we know what to obey. And it's God's prompting so we actually want to obey. And so as we pray, let me just say this. The only reason we can do this, because what it took for God to have his Holy Spirit go from among us to in us. And that was that our sin had to be paid for. And Jesus, God so loved us, he sent his son to die on that cross so those sins could be paid for. And then he rose again to give us a brand new life where he could dwell within us and do this whole brand new thing now of actually transforming the world by using us to do it. And so I want to pray that prayer. Now, I don't know whether you've ever said yes to Jesus or not, but I want to make sure that you know that there is a choice to make. Will you say yes to that gift? Christ on the cross to pay for all of your guilt, his resurrection to give you a brand new life, where he now, through his lordship, empowers you through his spirit to do his will, his way. But if we have said yes, then might I say for every tribulation, for every test set before us, may we pass them with obedience. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> I thank you for the way you lead us in it and walk us through it. I thank you, Lord, for those people in our lives, Lord, that you send that are much like either any of these guys, Lord, that are like an Othniel, Lord, that is really willing to just go straight at it with your power. I thank you for the Ichuds, God, those guys that are really just willing to wield that sword, but know it's double-edged. And God, perhaps one of the reasons we find ourselves so slow to obey is because of the fatness that we experience because in our Christian walks. 
which we recognize just means we're taking more in than we're exercising. But don't let that be the case. Make us people who are willing, God, to genuinely live out this word that you give us. And with that, God, we thank you for those people who are goaders in our life, like Shamgar, that are there just to continue to exhort us into action. But Lord, for all of that, we recognize all of that's the work of your Holy Spirit. So tonight, Lord, I just pray, first of all, for anyone who may have never said yes to this Jesus, this gift you've given, Father. But also I pray for every believer in this room that we would be willing to, that we would pass the test with obedience. And I cry out tonight, God, your power come upon us to do your will, your way. And your word to lead us and be our counsel, our guidance, a a lamp into our feet and a light to our path. God, that your spirit prompt us. Goad us, Lord, into your will. That we would feel that divine restlessness and that charge and that, that vim and that vigor to say, God, your way. And as Christians are dealing with this in our own hearts right now, if you've never said yes to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you're willing to say yes, I just ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you say is, I agree, let these words be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need to deal with that sin. But you tell me that you dealt with it already by paying for it on the cross of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. That He died on that cross so that my sin could be properly punished. And just like Scripture promised three days, on the third day He rose again so that I could have a brand new life. And I say yes. I say yes, confessing Jesus is more than my Savior, but as my Lord as well. And I invite you to be everything that you want to be in my life as I hand it over to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, tonight I just pray now that we would walk out of here not fearing tribulation as you told us, but cheer up. You've, over, you've already overcome the world. There's nothing you haven't overcome. So now, Lord, let us walk with you in obedience in great faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, thank you for the privilege of being in the Word with you and for the honor of being your pastor. Now, go be a blessing to each other.